I'd like to begin this evening with chanting the uh, middle portion of the Metta Sutta. And anyone who would like to may join me. We'll start with the line, wishing in gladness and in safety. And we'll end with the sublime abiding line. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection This is said to be the sublime abiding. I'll get to that part. (laughs) (laughs) And such beautiful words, really, to be related to, connected to a tradition that, you know, these same sentiments are found in all the great traditions, but there's something so direct and just this offering, free offering, this quality of generosity that's uh, so woven into this chant. May all beings, and and goes um, to great lengths to not leave any of them out. You know, all beings is pretty inclusive. There's not much outside that, but just in case. Great ones and mighty ones and big ones and little ones. All the different kinds. So I want to continue looking at this teaching. And I think maybe because it's so beautiful and it kind of engages the heart in that middle part that we just chanted, as I said, in my view, it's a metta practice. That's my experience, I should say. I think we can overlook some of the, the teachings there, perhaps. So the last few lines of this section speak to 
this um, sense of maintaining this recollection of metta is how it's uh, worded here. Sustaining this recollection, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, they they um, accidentally left out or in betweening, <laughs> which is um, one of the postures that um, just the translations. I don't know what happened there, but it's <coughs> it's implied, and and there's so there's this sense there that. You know, we can connect this quality of heart is available to us in any moment. Whatever we're doing, any posture, any activity, we can um, connect, connect to this. And But it does say uh, freed from drowsiness. That's interesting. That kind of stands out a little bit in there. Whenever I chant it, I think, oh, it's got a different vibe there. That's the, uh, this version, translate free from drowsiness. The, um, for those of you who have been learning the Pali, it's the line that says, Sayanova yawatasa vigata mido, vigata mido. So the mido part of that is the mida part of tinamida, which is the Pali for sloth and torpor. And the mida, or mido here, is the torpor part. So for some reason, the Buddha chose to focus on on torpor. And um, that's not a word we commonly use a lot of. Just working with a lot of torpor. I mean, around places like this. Yeah, okay, maybe we do. But generally out in your life, you know, you don't go around talking to your friends about your torpor. (laughs) And at least to me, this makes sense. Sometimes it's said that sloth is lack of physical energy and torpor is lack of mental energy. And that resonates in my experience. And if nothing else, it points to the reality that that in any kind of meditative practice, mental energy is, is important. You know, we can't, we'll get bogged down. We can still bring, it's amazing how how mindfulness can be there even when mental energy can go way down and the mindfulness can be, be there up to a point. But I think there's also uh, maybe this line in there may point to the, um, something having to do with um, setting the hindrances aside and the fact that metta is and the other Brahma-viharas are, are modes and methods for developing concentration, collecting and uh, gathering the mind, cultivating samadhi. And this, to me, relates also to the last line in this part where it's described as this sublime abiding or divine abiding. That's the translation of Brahma Vihara. I think they may have chosen the word sublime here in this translation, in part because the word divine might have um, some difficult uh, connotations for some or feel yeah, problematic. That word divine maybe feels like it's, it's not about us, you know, something beyond the, the human realm or beyond our capacity, which is not the case here. But with whatever translation we might use, the sense here is that 
any time that the mind and heart are suffused with the quality of metta, with love, or any of these Brahma Viharas, or all of them, then there is this sense of taking birth into a heavenly abode, a divine abiding. The mind is uh, open, we're connected, there's ease and a sense of um, fulfillment. There's nothing lacking at those moments. And there's a quality there of it being a sublime place to abide for a time. And if we look at this in terms of the possibility that there's some reference to um, developing concentration, um, then then there's more to be said because the Buddha um, spoke about concentration in many ways and throughout the teachings. In one teaching, he spoke about four developments of concentration uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya. And the first of these is described as the development of concentration that leads to dwelling happily in this very life. And sometimes that's translated as a pleasant abiding here and now in this moment. And in this particular place, the Buddha describes this in terms of the four meditative absorptions of the four jhana, first four jhanas. And he said, this is uh, developed, this is a concentration that leads to this pleasant abiding here, this sublime place to abide for a, for a time. And sometimes this is spoken about as um, the happiness or bliss of seclusion, because for a period of time, the mind is secluded from the energies of the hindrances or the kilesas. They're, they're held at bay by the um, collectedness of the mind, of the heart. And these states are pleasant often. Perhaps we'd even say they were blissful. We might, in moments, experience them as a sublime abiding, even divine abiding. But they are conditioned states. They're subject to change as conditions change. And so they're not to be confused with the end of the path. They have their use. They are certainly wholesome, valuable, useful. But in and of themselves, they do not lead to liberating insight. They can support the movement in that direction, certainly. So now I want to go to the um, final section of the Metta Sutta, which is really short. It's three short lines, one phrase, really. And this part has a uh, has a really different feeling and tone from the rest of the the sutta, and there's this sense of a shift away from at least the direct practice of metta towards wisdom and liberating insight on the heart's complete release. So now we'll chant that part if anyone wants to join me. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And sometimes um, people have have said to me or I've heard that that this change in tone is 
can feel confusing or even kind of uh, jarring, as though um, I can feel like that was stuck on as an afterthought somehow, as as if it kind of doesn't belong in a way. And it it is a striking shift of tone. And there is this move from this offering of boundless care and connection and this pure generosity of heart that is the quality of metta to words that seem to be speaking of uh, personal liberation. But in my view, these lines serve to remind us that everything the Buddha taught, everything he taught, always either revolved around or in some way led back to the liberation teachings, which we could summarize as the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Understanding suffering, understanding its cause, releasing that cause, realizing cessation of suffering and the path to develop to lead us in that way. And that's, that's really all he was interested in. So even this teaching comes back to that. And the Buddha wanted us to keep insight, liberation, wisdom, freedom from suffering in mind, to have these as our fundamental points of reference in our practice, in our lives. And so this last section starts with the words, by not holding to fixed views. And an alternative translation, which may be slightly more literal, by not falling into mistaken views. And so there's this direct connection that the Buddha seems to be drawing between seeing, understanding, releasing fixed views that we might hold or might not even realize we're holding all the time, and the movement towards insight and deepest realization. And Vance spoke about this in a really lovely way the other morning in answer to one of the questions, understanding how views operate in our lives. I'll say a few more words on this now. So the Buddha taught that views are limited fabrications that most of the time do far more to confuse and distort our understanding than help us to see with clarity. And so in the Buddha's understanding, right or wise view has much more to do with seeing through and removing mistaken or confused or distorted views than with building up a a better set of, of views, a superior set of views. He wasn't interested in that, more correct or something. So we could say that through the process of seeing through our mistaken views, just even seeing that they are views rather than reflections of reality, that through that process, then wise or right view, skillful view, useful view, onward leading view arises naturally. So I want to come back to um, these four fundamental mistaken views or distortions of view that Vance spoke about in an earlier talk, uh, the vipalasas these uh, views that we 
um, tend to hold that that really lie really at the heart of things and lead to this endless wandering rounds of birth, death, and rebirth, wandering in samsara. And the Buddha put it like this, these four, O practitioners, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view, seeing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self where there is no self, seeing the unlovely as lovely. And so in this teaching, beings are said to have gone astray with wrong views. And through this misperceiving, wander on from life to life, seeking happiness where it's not ever going to be found. So one aspect of this that I think is really profound is this movement towards happiness, peace. That's, that's there for all beings, even the ones who are really massively confused, more confused than any of us could probably ever fathom. And it's hard to see that underneath all of that confusion, which many times leads to really bad behavior, which is not okay. Bad behavior is not excusable. But we can see that underneath it is a confused, suffering being who wishes to be happy just like us. And this opens our hearts to the possibility of compassion, I think. And this teaching then says that when beings are able to see through these distortions of thought, perception, view, then clear seeing and wisdom are able to arise and they recover their right mind. And Vance used that phrase. It's such a, a beautiful pointing to that they recover their right mind, regain something that was there, you could say, but hidden. And through this, find the movement and the path leading away from suffering, out of suffering to freedom. And so as as I was saying, the Buddha was never interested in prescribing a particular set of views that we should adopt as our own. For example, the view that not-self is better than the view of self. The Buddha would never land here. He wouldn't say there's no self. He really, what he said was, our usual view of self is not what we think it is. not seeing things the way they really are. So we don't have to adopt the view that there's no self and take this on as like a philosophical stance or, or a belief or something. We just really look for ourselves and see what, what is this thing? <laughs> not a thing. What is this experience that I'm relating to as self? You know, we see for ourselves, that's the beauty and power of this practice, isn't it? We look and see, how is this showing up right now for me? We see that it isn't what we tend to think it is, that through this mistaken view, we attribute a kind of solidity and ongoing existence, you could say, to something 
that's just a feeling that arises out of conditions at certain times. It's not always there. Many of you have reported times when, when that feeling, when it isn't there, <laughs> can't find it. And then other times it's really there. I've seen this so much myself on retreat. Times when Greg really shows up and other times when he's not to be found <laughs> anywhere. And so we see that what we call self is not a thing. It's a, a fabrication. It's a mental concoction, an internal concoction with no actual substance. And it just arises at certain times out of conditions and passes away when those conditions change. And there's other examples of what we could say are fixed views that we might hold on to. The stories we tell ourselves are the stories that others have told us and then we've adopted as our own. Stories that don't reflect reality, don't reflect the truth, but may have gotten woven into our perception and our view so thoroughly that we don't even see that they're there and they become self-fulfilling because of that. And then they lead to so much stress and suffering in our lives. You know, ways that we identify ourselves as fearful or not lovable, somehow not okay, flawed or wrong. Or stories we tell ourselves just here on retreat periodically. I can't do this. I'm no good at this. And the Buddha is not telling us that these views are wrong or bad or evil and we need to somehow chop them off or get them to not arise. But we want to see them for what they are, that they are just views, that they're not reflections of the truth, of reality. And that through different conditioning, the mind often has a tendency a habitual tendency to create limited and limiting versions of reality. And we want to see when we're holding on to these views, when these views have become fixed in our our way of seeing life, seeing ourselves in the world. And so this practice allows us to see these internal fabrications of the mind as concoctions, And metta, and I want to go back to this definition from Caroline Jones as kindness with awareness. You could say metta infused with clear seeing with awareness can help to reveal and loosen up, help to reveal and and also loosen up these views. Reveal ones that we may not even have seen that are there. that have been leading to stress and suffering in our lives. And we feel the stress and suffering, but sometimes we don't see. It's all oriented around a view we've been holding that we didn't even see. So metta can really support clear seeing. This is my experience. And if you have this sense that sometimes through this practice of cultivating this beautiful quality, that all kinds of things are revealed 
Everything's going to come up there, I think. Helps us see through these views and helps to release them and free our minds and our hearts from, from bondage to them. And it opens up the possibility that we might start relating to them in the same way as we do all the other things that arise and pass away. In the same way we relate to a sight and a sound, a sensation in the body. And we don't latch onto them and we let them fall away because they're empty and they're rendered powerless in this way. And even though they still come up, there can be freedom because we have this protection of mindfulness that lets us see these things. And the next line um, in this last part uh, is translated here, um, the first one, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one. This is my favorite line. It might be my favorite line in this whole sutta in some ways. Said so the pure-hearted one with clarity, having clarity of vision. And I think this is a, it's a maybe a slightly more poetic, I think very beautiful uh, rendering of uh, the Pali words here for those of you who've been learning the Pali. Silawa dasanena sampano. So the silawa, that line means literally endowed with um, virtue or integrity and, um, and insight. So the silawa is from sila, and the dasana is a variation of uh, related to vipassana, dasana is another way of talking about insight. So it's this very simple literally virtue or integrity, insight endowed with. Pali works in a reverses a reverse order of things. Uh, there's a, a Pali scholar who used to teach a lot at the uh, Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. I think he's now affiliated with a university somewhere named um, Andy Olensky. And he used to do, put out a lot of um, really great articles in their journal. And um, he may on more than one occasion, but at least on one occasion, he did a quite an in-depth study of the Metta Sutta. And he kind of went through it line by line with his translation and uh, commentary on on it. And uh, he, in one, in one, this one that I have seen, he points to... Um, what he calls the inherent interrelationship between loving kindness and insight. And pointing to the fact that the development of both metta and insight or wisdom are very integrally related to the development of integrity or virtue related to sila. These are woven together and they don't develop independently. And he, he, these are his words, he describes them as the fundamentally symbiotic relationship between virtue, sila, and wisdom, panya. And he, he links it to the one sort of way the, our practice, this path is described as uh, the threefold training in sila, 
samadhi, panya, virtue or integrity, um, meditation, cultivation of meditation, which is represented by the word samadhi and panya, wisdom. And in one text, it's, uh, this is from the Diga Nikaya. I like this uh, image here. It says, just as one hand washes the other, so wisdom is purified by virtue and virtue is purified by wisdom. Where one is, the other is. The virtuous person has wisdom and the wise person has virtue. The combination of the two is called the highest thing in the world. So this goes back, I I think it was last night, Carol's talk, where she was talking about, you know, you can discerning the, the wise person by their actions. There's something about that in there, quite a lot. That, that, you know, actions matter. They really matter. That beautiful image uh, from Padmasambhava, my view is as wide as the sky. And my attention to and care of my actions, kamma, is as fine of grains as grains of barley flour. When have you eaten tsampa? You know what tsampa is? Tsampa is, there's people in Tibet and, and parts of Ladakh that pretty much live on, <laughs> on this. It's one of the things you can grow at high altitude is barley. And they roast it and they grind it really fine. I've lived on it for periods of time, trekking through the mountains. Somehow it really works above 14,000 feet. It's sits in there and works as a food. And uh, it's really fine. So having that experience, that connection to that, um, you know, it's, it it just really touches that quality of of, um, care, that attention there. And I also love and appreciate this translation of, of silawa as pure hearted. Because for me, it points to something that I feel like I have experienced directly. I think all of us may have, or certainly we may at times experience directly in meditation. And even at other times, these times when the mind is temporarily free of the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, they're not always there. And we can sense into or open our hearts and minds to the quality or feeling that we would describe as pure heartedness, purity of heart in those moments. I can't remember if one of my colleagues may have shared this. So we all say the same things over and over. (laughs) Anyway. The Buddha once described the mind as inherently luminous or radiant. And the Pali is pabasara chitta. Pabasara literally means brightly shining. And chitta is mind heart together. Pabasara chitta. It's a beautiful sound. And he said that this Radiance or luminosity is at times obscured by what he called adventitious defilements. Adventitious means visiting, something that's not inherent to 
in this case, to the mind. And defilement, which I don't like, but that's the usual translation of the Pali word, kilesa, will say an obscuration, something that gets in the way of seeing clearly. And uh, the teacher Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tan Jeff, he points to a profound, it may seem obvious actually, but it's actually very profound understanding that is implied here. He said, to perceive the mind's luminosity, this pabasara citta, means understanding that defilements such as greed, aversion, and delusion are not intrinsic to its nature. Without this understanding, it would be impossible to practice. That's important because if these things were inherent to the mind, if they were an aspect of the mind, always there, we'd never be free of their their grip on the heart. We might kind of push them away into a corner, but they'd always be lurking there. But because they are adventitious visiting, they're not inherent, not intrinsic to the mind, then freedom is a real possibility. It's a reality. And although those energies can obscure this pabasara citta, they don't change its nature. It's like the cloudy weather today. Sun's still shining up there. Clouds don't change the sun. And there are times, and I know all of us have had these moments, and maybe they're fleeting, maybe they're brief, but times where we connect to this, this pabasara citta, this radiance of mind, this luminosity. And that, that connection might not last. They get it, it gets obscured again, but that doesn't mean it's not there. This is from Ajahn Chah. About this mind, in truth, there's nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, or sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. And then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or happy or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. Our practice is simply to see the original mind must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. And we can also see these words as pointing to the pure-hearted one as pointing to the fully enlightened being, to the arahant, to someone who has fully developed the path and purified the mind to the point where the energies of the kilesas are uprooted. They don't arise anymore. 
or at least they're rendered completely powerless. Maybe they still arise, but they have no power over the mind. I think I read a quotation in a, an earlier talk from Mei Chi Kao, a, a Thai nun. She talked about everything, all everything, every sense impression and these kilesas and everything else arising in her mind and heart. And she said, I am unable to, te- to detect even an instant where they have any power over my heart, over my mind. So uprooted, no longer arising, rendered completely powerless. I'll take either one. They're both good. So then the next line in the sutta is being freed from all sense desires. The next to the last line. So we've been talking a lot about freedom from the power of craving. Here, and Guy talked about it in the links of uh, dependent origination, seen as the root cause of suffering, craving in the heart. The Buddha's description that Guy, I think, used in his last talk, um, my mind has uh, achieved the end of all craving, his description of his moment of enlightenment. So it's important here that we understand the difference between freedom from the power of craving and the arising of sense desire in the mind and the heart. Because freedom from bondage to the energy of craving, wanting, is not dependent on it never arising. And I think we've all seen this at times. You know, in, in any moment when the mind and heart are not under the sway Carol's image when they're not driving the bus. Then there is this sense of freedom. So even if they arise, they don't always have the upper hand, do they? They're not always in charge. We're not always relating to them on their terms. Sometimes we're relating to them on our terms. That's a big shift, isn't it? A guy in his talk, uh, last talk, shared some reflections from Ajahn Buddha Dasa in oh, the pamphlet was called Nibbana for Everyone. Remember that? And uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa spoke about what he called temporary Nibbana in there. And he, he called the, he reminded us that these kilesas are what he called Sankara Dhammas, fabricated things, concocted things. You know, pointing again to this there that they visit sometimes. And this is a little bit from Ajahn Buddha Dasa in that same terrain of temporary Nibbana. Any reactive emotion that arises ceases when its causes and conditions are finished. Although it may be a temporary quenching, merely a temporary coolness, it still means Nibbana even if only temporarily. So as Guy noted in his talk, 
Buddha Dasa does play with the colloquial meaning of Nibbana as coolness. Temporary coolness. But he makes an important comment in this in this uh, teaching. He's, he mentions that the times when these energies are not present outnumber the times when they are present. When they're times when they're when there's coolness, when they're not burning in the mind, there's more of those than the times when they are. We tend to notice when they're burning because that's really hot and that's not much fun. We don't notice the cool parts because they're not a problem. And of course, Ajahn Buddhadasa said, you know, they, they, it has to be that way or we'd go crazy <laughs> or kill ourselves or something, die, if they were there all the time. It's important that we notice that actually they're not there more of the time than they are there. And this comes back to the Buddha's talking about the, the luminous mind, the radiant pabasara citta, and his, his statement that the kilesas are just visitors and that they obscure this luminosity, but they're, they don't change that. They don't affect that basic nature. And so I think we need to open our minds and hearts to this possibility and these understandings. Notice times when these energies are not in the mind, they're not burning in the heart. Let's let's just look right now and see. Maybe they're not there right now. Let's take a moment and, and have a look. And maybe okay, until we're fully enlightened, there's there's delusion operating somewhere, but we'll set that aside. Just check and see what's there now for you. Maybe there's coolness in this moment. Or maybe even just recognizing a little burning of one of those things. Coolness can arise just through seeing it. Uh, Ajahn Chah's, one of his, his teachers was named Ajahn Man. He was a very famous teacher of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabua and others. Mei Chi Kao, he was her teacher also. <clears throat> and he calls, um, you know, the Thai forest tradition has a particular way of looking at things and using language. But he called the Pabasara Chitta, the primal mind. He said this, The mind is something more radiant than anything else can be. But because passing defilements come and obscure it, it loses its radiance like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. So meditators, when they know in this manner, should do away with these counterfeits by analyzing them shrewdly. 
And so this then can lead us to the final line of the sutta, is not born again into this world. So this final release from rounds of birth, death, rebirth, or you could say freedom from these energies that keep us bound to the endless turning of the wheel of samsara, endless wandering in search of happiness, not finding because not looking in the right place. So again from Ajahn Man, the second part of that quotation, when one develops the mind to the stage of the primal mind, this will mean that all counterfeits are destroyed, or rather counterfeit things won't be able to reach into the primal mind because the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed. Even though the mind may then still have to come into contact with the preoccupations of the world, its contact will be like that of a bead of water rolling over a lotus leaf. I love that image. Have you seen lily pads or lotus pads? You know, lotuses are water lilies. And there's something about the surface tension there that water just rolls. Other plants, the, the water just rolls off, forms a ball and just rolls off. And it doesn't get it wet at all. It's amazing. Of course, Ajahn Mun lived in a part of the world where there are lotuses, but we have lily pads on the ponds here. So whether or not we take these words not born again to this, into this world literally in this way of freedom from these rounds of birth, death, rebirth, or in a more, say, symbolic way in the way that we're born into each moment, we take birth into each moment and then that passes away in a new birth in the next there's still this, is this understanding that freedom from being born into repetitive, habitual thought cycles and behavioral patterns that lead us to suffer, causes stress and struggle and suffering in our lives. And we might just put this phrase into practice by noticing how a moment of awareness can allow us to see when we are falling into these habitual ways of behaving or thinking And right in that moment, we can find freedom from uh, being uh, enthralled by them. We can see through them and release their hold and grip on the mind. And as well, the cultivation of metta, of loving kindness, can help again, in this case, to reveal and soften up some of these mental habits that that we so easily fall into believing, identifying with, latching onto as I, as me, as mine. So in my view, it's fitting and appropriate and actually quite beautiful that the Metta Sutta ends with this, these last lines here, and with this um, turn of attention, you could say, or emphasis. Because this is, as I said, the whole thrust of the Buddha's teaching. And metta is seen as a direct support to us as we walk this path. And, and here it's described as this path of peace. It's a path of peace leading to peace. 
of peace leading to peace. So one of the most beautiful, I think, expressions of the heart of loving kindness of metta is is found in what's called bodhicitta, which literally means bodhi means awakened or yeah, awakened, and citta is mind or heart. And you could say on a relational level, bodhicitta is uh, the heart of compassion, the heart that responds to suffering with the wish to alleviate it and does alleviate it when possible and also shows up when there's nothing that can be done. On what we might think of as a more ultimate level, it's the nature of the awakened mind free of concepts of self and other. In the awakened mind, heart, bodhicitta, there are no barriers or boundaries, obstacles to the expression of kindness, love, care, compassion. Nothing gets in the way of that. And so if we can connect to this understanding, hold it in mind in a way that's, that we can actually sense into for ourselves in some way. Then we can approach our practice with the motivation that we awaken for the benefit of all beings. And we can dedicate our practice in this way. When I face this symbol here, this carving of the Buddha, and I hold my hands like this and I, I bow, not every time, but many, most of the time, I bring these words into my mind. May my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. I just bring those, I bring those words. I, I make that intention, <laughs> bring that forward in my heart. I started doing it a long time ago. And really because Joseph Goldstein said he was doing it. And he said, I should do it. And when I first was doing it, there was a little voice that would say, yeah, right. Who do you think you're kidding? As if, as if that could be possible. That my life and practice could be a benefit to anyone. That was Mara trying to get me, <laughs> mess me up. But I just kept doing it. And over time, that little voice has quieted down a lot. And a lot of time it isn't there. Um, <clears throat> so I want to end with some lines from Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which Monica shared a number of verses from this beautiful text. But... Um, I'm ending this talk with some more. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. 
and in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. And thus for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Thank you for coming this evening. Thank you for your practice. It's a beautiful thing. And I hope you see it that way. Because I certainly do. And we have about 35 minutes now before the chanting. I don't know what the chanting will be tonight. Mystery chanting. So please uh, be welcome if you have the energy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.